Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Episode 27 Escape. Hi, and welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian Clancy, and I produce the Dublin Story Slam. And on this podcast, we're bringing you three stories that featured at our most recent online storytelling event. So if you haven't uh, heard, we have moved things online, given the fact that we have no idea when we will be back doing storytelling events live So we've decided to move things online. So this is the second one where we invited three storytellers to tell us three personal true stories inspired by the theme Escape. So you're going to hear those stories. The show is actually up on YouTube at the moment. So if you want to see the full show, go visit our website, thedublinstoryslam.com, and you will find a link that will bring you to the live show on YouTube. But for now, we are just going to bring you the three stories that featured on the night. And the first of these stories comes from Nula Moore. Now, Nula was coming to us live from her shop. Nula has a linen, a bed linen shop in Dingle in County Kerry, which is this beautiful, picturesque little village, which is usually hopping this time of the year, but like most places in Ireland, is closed And uh, Nula was broadcasting from her shop because it's pretty much the only place where she could get the Wi-Fi. And she told us this remarkable story. And to, I suppose, really appreciate it, you have to know a little something about Nula. Nula is an open water swimming champion. And she has swam around the entire coast of Ireland in a relay in 2013, um, she has done a double relay across the English Channel. So Nula is this incredibly strong and powerful um, swimmer. But she tells us a story about a time when she felt that all of that achievement was at risk of being lost forever. And it had the most amazing reaction from the audience, with just everybody really inspired by her message So you're going to hear a little bit of the audience just at the end of this story as well. So this is Nula Moore. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to my story this evening. So when I was a child, I every Sunday I would head out the the harbour's mouth with my father on a boat and he would just throw us in and we would just basically swim to shore. And even though we weren't big swimmers at the time because we were children, there was a great sense of survival within, within our family. Um, and then as time went on, I became very aware that my father had shaped my swimming in that he was a huge influence in my life, in the challenges that I took on. 
So swimming around Ireland and, and taking on some of the greater swim challenges, the sense of survival and the sense of fearlessness that I had was very much given from, from my father and his fishing background. So it was very strange for me a few years later when I suddenly became a carer for my father. I was sitting beside the fire looking in and, and knowing that this was a journey that I would have to take. The flames were going up the chimney and I was just staring in and I felt so, so lost. And, and, and you know, when you are at the cusp of huge achievements and all of a sudden you don't have any time on your hands and you certainly aren't able to take on these challenges, I, I felt terrible. I was disappointed. I was traumatized. And, and mostly I think I was so frustrated with life. But the one thing that I knew is that I had the ability to escape from it all. And I think coming through the life that I lived, I knew that there was a way out. So I set about trying to find um, um, a swimming environment that I could achieve in that would be a very short period of time. Because marathon swimming, we swim for five and six and seven hours at a time. But I needed something short. So I found the International Ice Swimming Association. And 15 minutes is a really long swim and, and 30 minutes is you're on the cusp of survival. So I thought, hey, I'm good with that. So I then decided to reach out to the ice swimming community and you swim in water that is under five degrees. So don't get me wrong, caring for my father was not a difficult task, but I knew that I had to find a way out of the life that I was sinking into. So finding water of five degrees and under was very, very difficult. Um, the water temperature around the Irish coast is between 7 and 10 degrees. So the only thing that I could do was go to the local fish factory. And I got them to get these big vats. And I asked them if they would fill them up with ice. Now, it's really weird to be standing in a fish factory in your swimming togs, hat and goggles when they're gut gutting fish. There's fish coming down the conveyor belt. And I'm just sitting there about to get in. Now, the guys got into it really quickly and that they started shoveling ice on top of me. Um, but what was fascinating is that like the pain was absolutely intense, but I got a real sense of, yeah, I can do this. So the next thing is that I actually discovered that I was invited to, well, I didn't discover because I did reach out to the community, but I ended up in Tumen, Siberia. And I had signed up for a swimming competition of 1000 meters of zero degrees. So Siberia is far Eastern Russia. The air temperature was minus 33 and the lake was frozen over. And when we got there, I'm standing in a pool that is made from the ice and the guys were there with chainsaws and they're slicing up one meter of ice. And I'm sitting there going, well, this is another fine mess you've got yourself into. So the time came to start the race. Now everybody there was swimming 50 meters and hundred meters, but I had signed up for a thousand meters. So I put my hands on the ladder and as I was about to take my first step in and I kept visualizing the ice bucket in the fish factory. And as I was about to take my step into the ice, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I have to swim as well. <laughs> well, my hands got stuck on the ladder because it was minus 33 degree air. And I was trying to unfurl my hands from the ladder and move my feet down. And I have 20 seconds to get in here, get my head in the water and start swimming. And I hadn't thought this through at all. 
So once I got into the water and it was black and for anybody that's ever swam in ice water, cold water, or even had a cold shower, your initial reaction is, is, is to do this. The next thing there's a whistle going and it's breathe and it's like, oh my God, I have to swim. And I started swimming and I couldn't swim. I couldn't function. I couldn't move. So I rotated my arms and I thought, Jesus, what am I doing here? I can't breathe. The girl on the other lane was going up and down. And as she was going up and down, I thought, my God, my last swim was 26 kilometers and I can't get 25 meters up a pool. So I had this huge fight with myself. And I just said, breathe. If you can't breathe, you can't swim. You've got to breathe. So I just kept breathing and I kept functioning and I kept pushing. And I touched the ladder at the top and I came up and I came down. Now the darkness at this stage had come into my head. And I started to panic and the anxiousness came over me and this all this stress. And all I could think of was I have to get out of here. So once I got to the end, after 150 meters, now you have to bear in mind, I rarely would get undressed for anything under 5,000. But I'm standing there at 150 meters getting out of this pool of ice. Now I got up the ladder and once I got out of the ladder, I thought, you know what, this is okay. But while I was in there, the stress, the anxiety, the pressure, and it was all to do with the fact that I couldn't breathe. Now I won a medal, which was very exciting. And once I got home and I turned the key in the door and I went back in and my father was delighted to see me. Um, of course he was, because he was getting fed again. And I told him, I said, you know, daddy, this is what I did. And, and I had to get out after 150 meters. And, and he said, sure, a man can live for three days in those waters. And you just kind of cop yourself on and say, you know what, I wasn't dead. So I'm going to figure this one out. Now, strangely enough, I got another invitation to go to Murmansk in Russia. And again, it was inside the Arctic Circle. And it was in 10 weeks after that date. So I sat myself down and I tried to figure out beside the fire, how the hell am I going to get to this thousand meters at zero? Now, bear in mind that no, Irish, uh, no swimmer from Ireland had ever achieved this before. And I was, would have been about the fifth woman in the world to do this. Now, I wasn't happy with 50 meters or 100 meters or 150. I was going for the 1,000. So I organized my brain to try and understand while I was sitting by the fire and say, okay, how am I going to get to the 1,000? So as time planned, I, f I focused on what was taking my breath away because the only thing that was stopping me from achieving was breathing. So, and we've all heard of the Vim Hof where we, um, but that's all very fine till the whistle goes and you have to sprint. So I focused on what took my breath away. So I jogged uphill and I brought myself to the tantrum and I brought myself to the moment where every time I, I was about to say, I, I, I can't, and I would go and breathe. So I did all of this until I got myself in the game. So I arrived in Murmansk and this time there was a thousand competitors and this time there were six lanes in the pool and I was in the big girl competition and I thought mother of God what in the name of God have you got yourself into so I stood on the side of the pool and I just said you've got this and I held on to the letter and I just put my down the first step the second step the third step and I can't describe the pain but if you can put yourself in the freezer when this is over but I would suggest under please do that under observation but if you get into the freezer and just literally feel that pain encompass your body it catches your feet your fingers your hands and then it takes your breath away and you have got to put your face in that water in darkness with a pincer on your head and you drive your way through that so I knew I only had to get up and down the pool 40 times. So I thought about good things about my family and that only got me to about five lengths. So I started to sing a song and I just kept pushing. 
So once I got up the pool and came down, you get to the point where you start flexing your hands and you start doing these kind of like little body checks to see, okay, I'm still functioning. This is a good thing. And you keep swimming. But what is amazing about it is once you get control of your breathing and once you can push to one side, the fact that this is not life-threatening. You know, there are medical teams there. You have got the power to do this. So I just kept driving through the breathing and sometimes it became overwhelming. So I got myself back in control again. I kept focusing. If you can't breathe, you can't swim. You can rotate your arms through this. So I touched the ladder and I remember the last two lengths. It was 38 lengths to go and they have these signs where they flip the chart over and you can see it coming down. I had two lengths to go. The leg kick came in. You'd swear to God I was like this little machine coming down the pool. And I don't know whether I was excited to finish it or that I was excited that I'd actually achieved it. Once you get out of the pool in ice swimming, you can't get dressed, you can't put on your clothes, you can do nothing for yourself, so you have a team. And it's very important to stay together at that time. But when I exited the water, I became aware at that particular moment in time that I was the first Irish swimmer to ever complete this distance, but I was also the fifth woman in the world to achieve it. Um, and I think within it, I became very much aware that this is who we are as people, that this is what we can achieve if we can just get control of the breathing. So I remember just getting myself together, getting my certificate, getting my medals and heading home. Um, and when I turned the key in the door, I remember going in and the beauty about traveling home when you're caring about somebody is you have to stop at an airport and get a load of sandwiches because the minute you turn the key in the door, it's, is that you? And you put the kettle on and we sit down and, and you tell the story and you sit beside the fire again and you chat. And it never mattered to me that other people knew what it was that I had achieved. It was never about the medals. It was never about the certificates. And they meant so much to me because... As I knew what it took to achieve every one of those medals. And a lot of people say, oh, I didn't know that you've ever achieved these things, but I did it to get through the journey that I was on. And I think for me, the extremes keep us honest. And I think at this moment in time, we probably experience the same thing, that the minute you're hit with these extreme environments, you are so raw, you're broken down to your weaknesses. And I think when you start recognizing your weaknesses, you can build on your strengths. And I think for me, I didn't want to become just a carer for my father. He defined who I was as a person and he was responsible for giving me the ability to take on the swims that I did because of who he was. So a lot of people would say, how do you swim in the ice? And I would say, well, do you want to meet my daddy? And a lot of it was the fact that as children, he drove us to these extremes in giving us his view of the world, which was fishing. What I will say is that one of the things he always said to me is that a storm can't hit you on four sides. And we would discuss this a lot. And he would say that in any boat and in any storm, the boat drives into the waves. Any waves that come from the side or the stern, they can take the boat. The boat has no control. So you drive into a storm. And by driving into the storm, you get to control your outcome. But the journey that I took through the ice, has given me the ability to drive in to all these amazing experiences I've had afterwards whether they were interlinked or whether they weren't what I do believe was we are the sum of the parts and for me I escape my world every now and then people come in and they ask for a sheet and they leave with a story so I hope you enjoyed that that was Nuala Moore there with an inspiring story. Um, I just love 
the idea that it was coming to us from her linen shop because like Nula is a full time, runs a full time business. And if things were normal, Nula would right now, she was meant to have been swimming across a glacial lake that's located 4,000 metres above sea level near Mount Everest. It's one of the highest lakes of its kind in the world and only three people before her um, have made this swim successfully. So if you want to find out more about that next challenge that, that awaits Nula when, when things get back to normal and if you want to give her a little bit of a helping hand she has a GoFundMe page that we'll have a link to. You can find out more about Nula's achievements and um, also how you can help make her dream a reality as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. On to our next story. Graham Dunn works in a bank, and back in 2006, he was caught up. In uh, and a night to remember, I suppose, is, is a bit of an understatement. There is a mention of violence. Uh, there is the threat of violence, but there is no real physical uh, violence in this particular story. But it's a really inspiring story with a very, very important message. And we're just very grateful uh, for Graeme to sharing this for the very first time with anybody. So here's Graeme Dunn. Hi everyone. When I was younger, I was a bit of a worrier and like most of my worries, they were all in my head. Uh, I was playing football for a team called FC Aylesbury. I used to play right back for them. I was working in a bank. I was number one cashier there, which meant that I was kind of in charge of the team of cashiers. Now we had great fun in the bank. But I used to always be worrying, are we meeting targets? Are we exceeding expectations? You know, how are we getting on? How am I getting on as well? I kind of find myself then on a Friday going drinking with my friends for the weekend, have a great time, then come back to Monday morning and crash back with the worries. Where am I going? What am I doing with my life? 
uh, I was kind of, I was setting these expectations for myself and I was wondering, was I meeting them? And I do remem remember, sorry, I was beginning to feel that I was trapped in a life that I was creating by myself. Then on the 28th of August, 2006, uh, something happened and it made me think differently about my worries. It was a Monday evening. I was out playing football, uh, training actually, and I returned home late that evening and my mom had my dinner in the oven. I was living at home with my mom and two younger sisters at the time. The dinner just happened to be sausages, mashed potato and baked beans. So it was a dinner of champions and uh, one of my personal favourites. Uh, my mom and my sister Leanne were in the kitchen watching telly. I ate my dinner and then when I got up to put my plate in the sink, I suddenly heard a knock on the door. Now where the sink is in the house, you can see the front door from there. So from out, from where I was standing, it looked like my other sister, Lindsay, she happened to be out with her friends. It looked like her friends at the door. So I walked towards the door and I could see through the, the stained glass window a few figures. And as soon as I pushed the handle down, the door was forced open and a shotgun was put in my face. I was told to uh, get in and get my fucking head down. I was then frog marched into the kitchen where my mum and sister were. I was tied to the kitchen table or the kitchen chair with some cable toys. Uh, of course, we were we were a bit. It was terrifying. I remember looking at Leanne; she was stunned. My mum kept asking, "What was this about? What was this about?" And I remember clearly your man saying, "He'll tell you. He knows what this is all about." And then um, it turns out that I was I was getting held up in a tiger raid. Uh, we'd we'd been told about it in work, but now not in a million years do you know do you actually think that it's going to happen to you? Um, so after about an hour, they took my mom and Leanne out of the house. Now my mom was only she only two weeks after an operation. Both of them had asthma, so I was really worried about them. Uh, when they were gone, I was told that I'd be going into the bank the next morning and I'll be taking whatever cash is in there. Um, we still had to wait for my sister Lindsay to come home. So about an hour or so later, I could hear the front door. Now the house was in pitch black at this stage. And I remember her walking into the kitchen and turning the light on and then grabbing her and the screams were, um, and then putting her hand over her mouth. And I remember I had to actually tell her, I was trying to tell her to sh shut up nearly because I was trying to explain, they have mom and they have Leanne here, um, so be quiet. Uh, anyway, that wasn't, that wasn't a nice feeling. Um, the rest of the night, it was pretty much intimidation and threats. I remember one of them, the, I think he was the leader, he told me that uh, either your ma or your sister is getting a bullet. Now, we said this to your ma and your sister, and your ma has decided that she's going to be the one to get it. Um, so there's nothing like being told that that kind of makes you uh, focus your concentration. So the next morning I was, I went into work, I brought Lindsay with me. And now they had told me before I left, or sorry, they left about 7am and then I made my normal trip into work. Uh, they gave me a duvet to put the cash in and they gave me a mobile phone and they told me 
that I'll be watched from the minute I leave the house till the minute I get to the bank. So when I got there, uh, I met the assistant manager at the front door. And as soon as we walked through, I told him what happened. And I can still remember the blood draining from his face. Uh, the shock, he, he agreed that we won't contact the police and we'll do what they're after telling us to say or t telling me to do. Now, when I went in that morning, um, you see the, this, this time, time safe, it's set every night. So I didn't set it the night before. So we didn't know what time the, the safe was going to open in the morning. And I had to wait for one of the cashiers to come in. And then surely when he came in, he couldn't remember what time he set it, set it until either. Uh, so we're sitting around waiting and you're just waiting for a click in the safe. Um, we were only waiting probably about an hour, but honestly, it felt probably like a week. Um, then the mobile phone, he gave me started ringing, and when I answered it, your man was demanding, where's the money? And I thought he, he was asking, are we messing him around? And I said, we're not. Um, I'm trying to get things done as fast as possible. We haven't called the police. There's nothing to worry about. We're going to get you your money. And then he put my mom on the phone. And I started crying. I could hear her crying. Then the phone just went dead. But almost instantly, the safe unlocked. So I clicked, opened it up, took all the cash out, put it in the duvet. It was about three, 300,000 euro. Uh, I scooped it up and I, I walked out of the branch. They were ringing me on the phone and instructing me I was to leave. I ended up in a laneway not too far from the bank. I left, they told me to leave the cash, leave the mobile phone, and leave my car there and go for a walk. And they'd ring me on my, my personal number. Uh, so I went walking. And even that walk, you see, because I knew that I had, I had upheld all of my responsibilities for them that night. I'd done everything they wanted me to do. But still, there was that period where I still, I'm still, my sisters and my mom still aren't safe and I don't know where they are. So I was feeling really anxious. Although, again, that was only an hour. It felt a lot longer. I got a call, uh, told where they were. I rang the assistant manager in the bank because I had no car. He came down, picked me up, and they were actually in a cemetery not too far from Baldoyle. Uh, we got there, and when we arrived, there was police vans, uh, there were sirens, there was a small crowd gathering. Um, I got a bit panicked. I hopped out of the car, ran up, told there was a few guards there. I told them who I was. And then I realized then that my sister had actually, she bit through the cable toys on her and my mom's wrists. And the two of them got free. And they managed to contact the police anyway. So that's how the police were there. At that time, I did know that uh, it was all over, they were safe and I was safe. Uh, to this day, nobody has ever been charged for the robbery. Um, but if I could say, look, the robbery itself, it's, uh, it's helped me not be such a worrier. I know it's mad to say, uh, even in the, the aftermath of it, we were put up in a hotel and my sisters were ordering fillet steaks like three times a day. Um, and we invited our family over on the Friday evening and we had total knees up. Uh, we mostly, like we drank thousands. Um, in, in free beer, it was all on the bank. And I remember before doing that, I would have been really worried, no, we can't do this. But then I was just like, you know what, fuck it. Uh, we'll, we'll charge the bank up. Um, and then I suppose what happened then afterwards, and, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's not something that uh, just flicked overnight. I just kind of got that 
try not to worry as, as much as you do sense over me. Um, it did take a while, but now I find actually people coming to me with their worries that I, I get the opportunity to tell them, you know, not to worry so much. And that'd be my message to anyone here tonight. If you do find yourself worrying about um, maybe the small things, try not to worry because what's important is the people you love and uh, anything outside of that, uh, you know, it's kind of nearly irrelevant. So thanks a million for listening. That was Graham Dunn uh, there, and as I said, it was just incredible to see the audience kind of react afterwards because these online events are done via Zoom, which is this online conference app, and you can kind of see the messages, people interacting with each other, and just kind of giving reactions uh, to the story as the story unfolds. And it's these little messages and little vibes that people are sending the storytellers that 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 even though they're not, you know, physically there with them, they very much are there in their own homes. So it was just a really, really wonderful um, atmosphere that they created. So a huge thanks to Graeme for being part of it. Our final storyteller is a... Uh, a security guard by daytime, um, but in his other life, he is a champion of insects and creepy crawlies and the kind of things that might make some people run a mile. Kali Ennis is one of the hosts, along with Colette Kinsella, of the Critter Shed podcast. And if you follow our podcast network, The Warren, which the Dublin Story Slam is a proud member of, you will have may have come across the podcast. It's all about insects and creepy crawlies and it's nature and science, but also just really down to earth stories of just how amazing these creatures are. And a lot of them are based around the shed that Collie has built for himself at the end of his garden. And it's home to everything from African land snails to tarantulas, uh, scorpions, you name it, it's in there. And Collie is a fascinating and and a brilliant ambassador uh, for that world. Collie told us a story, not from the Critter Shed, but from his own home, uh, of what happens when you have a shed full of amazing but very exotic uh, insects and one of them escapes. This is Kali Ennis. How you doing? So um, my name's Kali Ennis and as far back as I can remember since I was a little child I've been fascinated with the lesser loved creatures of this world. The bugs, the slugs, the creepy crawlies. Um, when I was a kid I would get the old uh, Christmas biscuit tins that you'd get off your granny, big metal ones, and I'd poke holes in them, and I'd keep uh, various slugs, snails, spiders, beetles in them. I'd separate them all out by species, and I'd learn how to breed them, and then I'd keep their young and breed them on in jars, build up a little collection for myself. Went out, bought every kind of nature book and watched every Attenborough documentary, like, you know, religiously. So it was a big passion of mine. Um, from a very young age and then one day when I was around eight I went into George Street Arcade Pet Shop which was a fairly famous pet shop in Dublin city centre and uh, just in the main arch as you walked in they had all their fish tanks there and the first uh, tank had a little animal in it called a fire-bellied newt about that size and to me it just blew my mind because all we have in Ireland there are smooth newts our regular newts and our frogs and um, 
so which I would kind of be very aware of, but I hadn't seen anything like this. To me, this was like a dragon or a dinosaur, something magical, completely different. So I begged and I asked, uh, could I get that as a pet? And I did, and that started off a whole uh, lifestyle change for me from that age. I I kept that news up on the wall where most people would have photographs and, of uh, footballers and rock stars. I had a fish tank with a newt in it and uh, several more terrapins and tortoises and frogs would spread out. And as I grew older, I got more. And uh, when I moved out, got my first apartment, I uh, converted all the wardrobes into enclosures for different animals and I'd had them all on shelves. So when the landlord came in, I could just close my, my doors over. You wouldn't notice. Also kept a large collection of uh, scorpions and spider under my bed and none of my uh, uh, callers at the time knew. So I kept that uh, quite, quite secret. <laughs> when I started going out with my wife and got serious, I had to introduce her to um, the critters. So uh, that was interesting and um, bringing her into the, the room slash uh, the bedroom slash uh, herpetarium where I kept all my my cages full of animals and uh, I think the first time she was in the room actually I, had, I was babysitting a rattlesnake for a mate, a mate of mine which was uh, yeah in the deep end but that passion went on with me and when we eventually got married and I moved into my first house and decided that I couldn't keep all these animals in the house. Well, not all of them, not the, the mad ones. So I built myself a shed out the back garden, which is aptly called the Critter Shed. Um, and I converted it into basically a lab and a, a room with each individual enclosure met out for the specific care of each individual animal in it with temperature gauges and all that stuff. When the crash happened in 2008, I ended up getting a load more animals because people were emigrating and I had to look after them. I also do, I also work with Trinity College with the zoology department there. So these animals became part of my work. Them, as in introducing students to the animals, not just the book, you get to actually hold it, you get to learn how to work with it. And doing public outreach in schools, encouraging young kids to get into science to get that spark seeing those animals and getting that spark and that joy and that interest in the natural world which a lot of kids are missing out on nowadays because of the digital disconnect they're all stuck in ipads or on computers and it's just if you can get that little spark of interest in them uh, it can really start a, a, something special part of the, the gig of bringing or doing these talks in schools is bringing animals to and from schools. So I will pack them up in bags or in boxes and put them in a bag, a kind of an, an army sack, because they're just bugs. And I bring them off uh, to the schools and then I come back and I put them down in the kitchen and I'd have a cup of tea. And then I bring them out to their individual enclosures and pop them in. And one day I had done this, <clears throat> I had my tea, I went out to the shed, I put Mr. Frog in his enclosure, I opened up the next one, Mr. Snake, and put him in his enclosure, and then I found an empty box, and I went, oh shit, something's, something's not in its box. So I checked the bag, it wasn't in the bag, so I said, well, I definitely, definitely opened the bag in the kitchen. So I realized the only place it could have gotten out was in our kitchen, and what had disappeared on me was about this long, uh, about as thick as my finger, um, so about seven or eight inches long, uh, 
looks like a snake, but has about 270 legs and a pair of antennae. And it is a giant train millipede. It's a species of African millipede. They call them train millipedes because in the breeding season, when they climb up into the, the tops of the trees to find mates, they look like choo-choo trains going one after the other. So I had a dilemma. What do I do? Do I tell my family, my beautiful family, that I have uh, lost a fairly large bug around the house? Or do I keep it quiet and say nothing and just hope that he shows up? So I decided to uh, do the latter and not say anything. I left out some cucumbers at night, like uh, Santa Claus <laughs> on the ground um, for, the, for the millipede to have a munch on. And I was just kind of hoping that maybe I'd stumbled in from the pub some evening and we'd cross paths and that would be the end of it. Um, but about a week and a half to two weeks went past and I still hadn't found them. And what was really interesting was the food that I was putting out that had been disappearing wasn't disappearing anymore. So I was kind of a little bit concerned. Anyway, one day I was in work. It was just early morning. Um, I got in to do some work in Trinity and I got a phone call from my wife. And it was very animated, <laughs> the phone call, as in my eardrum nearly exploded. Because what had happened was um, she was pouring out a bowl of uh, Kellogg's Special K for herself. Um, she's sitting down at the table. And as she poured out the bowl, a plastic toy fell out. Um, and she was genuinely confused as to why there was a plastic toy when they hadn't done that in years, and especially in an adult Special K box. So she looked at the box to see what was the offer they were given. And then she realized as she looked down that the plastic toy was slowly unfurling itself <laughs> and walking out of the bowl. And that's when she realized that it was probably one of my animals had gotten loose and actually had eaten its way into the bottom of the, uh, the special K and had survived quite well off this uh, nutritious breakfast cereal for, for a good week and a half to two weeks. So anyway, uh, I talked to you what to do. It wasn't, a, it's not a dangerous animal, it's a vegetarian, but still not something you want in your breakfast bowl. Um, so I, we got her to put the bowl over the Mr. Millipede and um, I came home and collected him, put him in his enclosure and faced the music. Uh, spent a couple of nights on the couch, but uh, <laughs> bought a lot of flowers and chocolates, um, but uh, it uh, went away in the end and uh, we kind of have a laugh about it now. The lesson I learned from the whole experience was if um, it's not something that everybody can take on, but uh, if you do have a giant African insect crawling around your house, you're probably better off being honest about it in the first place. <laughs> the end is everybody. <laughs> that was Collie Ennis there with amazing but also a hilarious story about what happens when when one of your closest friends um escapes in your family home and what was amazing about that story was that you again with the zoom thing you can kind of see everybody's faces if they have their cameras activated and the facial reactions of people as they were sipping on their wine and hearing about this millipede slowly unfurling itself in the cereal breakfast bowl was just hilarious and absolutely uh, really 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 thrilling forget your live cinema this 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 is where it's it's really at um also make sure to check out the critter shed podcast we'll have a link to it on our page 
Okay, so before you go, there is one thing that we do need your help with. And that is keeping the show on the road. In light of everything that has happened with COVID, we've had to cancel an awful lot of our shows and we have no idea when we're going to be back. But also we've no means of actually just supporting what it is that we do here um, at the Dublin Story Slam. So we started a funding system so everybody can chip in. And so it can be a five euros, 10 euros uh, donation, or it can be a 20 euros donation. And the thing about the 20 euros donation is that for everybody who buys a ticket, you are invited to a storytelling workshop that will happen via Zoom. Uh, It'll be May the 9th, probably in the afternoon, but we'll be confirming our times this week. And the workshop is about teaching you how to tell your story. So what makes a great personal true story, where to find yours, and then most importantly, how do you actually build it? Where do you start? Where do you finish? And what happens in between? So if you want to support us, but also learn a little bit more about storytelling, then head over to the DublinStorySlam.com. There will be a link that will bring you to a ticket page. You can make your donation there or you can buy a little 20 euro ticket uh, to our workshop. So if you can make a donation, it would be really, really appreciated. We are making plans for our third birthday, which uh, is happening in May, which is now. So we are in the middle of putting together another live online show. Um, Each of these shows have, have booked out just in over a day. So there is a limit on the number of people that we can have. Um, but we'd really like to see you there. So if you want to join us, uh, be in the audience for the next one, maybe have a slice of virtual birthday cake with us and help us ring in the fourth year of the Dublin Story Slam, then head over to the mailing list that you can find on the DublinStorySlam.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you very, very, very soon and uh, stay safe. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.